The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Before we begin, let's go to the throne of grace in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we come tonight before the throne of grace, knowing that you hear us because we have our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, the babe who came into this world, truly God, truly man, lived for us, died for us, rose again from the dead for us, ascended into heaven for us so that our position is secured. And we come tonight, Lord, in worship to you, to praise your name, to honor you, and we thank you, Lord, for the promise of your return, that you said that you would come back in the exact same way that you went. And so, Lord, you are our blessed hope. Our hope is not in politics or education or our abilities. Our hope is in you. Our eyes are on you. We confess that tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are discussing something that is near and dear to my heart and really is near and dear to every Christian's heart, and that is the subject of the Lord's return. Every Christian lives in anticipation to Christ's second advent, to the day when, when Christ will return. I remember when I was a little boy, we would come up to stoplights, and I would look at my mom and i say, do you think Jesus will come back before this light turns green? You know, I think he will. You know, I, I think it's going to happen. Never happened. Um, but that's, that's, the, uh, that's the perspective of the Christian is that we're waiting. That's, that's what we're looking to. And when you understand that history has that fixed ending point of the Lord's second coming, it puts everything in perspective. It puts everything in perspective that we're facing in this world because we know how history ends. We know where history's going. And really, that's the perspective of the New Testament. I know when we talk about eschatology, which is the study of the last things, where does your mind immediately go? All the way to the future, right? Your mind automatically goes forward. But the New Testament says that everything since Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, is the last times. Everything. That's the New Testament eschatology, is that everything since the Holy Spirit came is the last days. And I put some verses on your handout. Let's look at these. Writer of Hebrews says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Acts 2.17, Luke records, and in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, that every believer in the new covenant will have the Holy Spirit. That's, these are the last days, because every believer has the indwelling Holy Spirit. James says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Peter, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. That's 1 Peter 1.20. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 10:11 says, "Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come." And Paul wrote that 2000 years ago. The end of the ages has come. I read one New Testament scholar this week. He said, "It is not open to doubt that according to scripture, with the ascension of Christ and the descent of the Holy Spirit, the last period of the world's history has begun. This present period in which we live is the last on the divine program. So we, friends, aren't looking forward to the last days. We are in the last days. We are in 
in the final age. And you might say, well, man, it's been 2,000 years. How can that be? Well, I want to show you a verse. This is in 2 Peter. You, you probably know this verse. You quote it to your children, your grandchildren. You probably had have people quote it to you when you've been impatient with something. But Peter says this in 2 Peter 3.8. 2 Peter 3.8. Peter reminds us of this. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Remember, is God in time or outside of time? God's outside of time. And so we're saying, Lord, sure seems like a lot of time has gone on, but God's not in time. For the Lord, it's two days, 2,000 years. So how long will history keep going? How long until the Lord's return? Well, this is very important. I want you now to turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, and then I'm going to point you to the beginning of Matthew 24, but Matthew 24, verse 36. This is a very important statement that our Lord makes. Matthew 24, 36. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Jesus, as the divine God-man, chose not to know certain things. In some cases, chose not to exercise his divine prerogative. And this is one of those instances where, as the Messiah, as the Christ, he clearly says he does not know the hour of his return. And he says, no one knows. No one knows. And no one will ever know until the Lord comes back. So here's what's important to, to take away from that, is if somebody says that they know, <laughs> they are lying. Remember a guy named Harold Camping? I mean, there, there's been date setters throughout the, the history of the church, lots of date setters. And people will say, the Lord, I think the Lord is going to come back in 1984. That was a big date. Or the Lord's going to come back in the year 2000, you remember that one, with the crash of the computers, which didn't happen. But people have been setting dates for 2,000 years, and every time they've been wrong. So that is what is certain. What is certain is, is that we are uncertain of the day of the Lord's return. It will come as a thief in the night, which means it will take you off guard. It's not going to be something that we can set our clock to. It's going to be um, unexpected. That's the, the right word. It'll be unexpected. But all that being said, all that being said, we don't know the time. We're in the last days. There are some clear indications that we are given in Scripture of signs of our Lord's return. And I would like to cover some of those briefly with you tonight. The first one, and we're going to stay right here in Matthew chapter 24, are called the birth pangs. The birth pangs. These are, this is the first sign. Now, Matthew 24, this, this section of Scripture is called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. It's also found in Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21. It's during Jesus' Passion Week. He comes out from Jerusalem, comes with his disciples, crosses the Kidron Valley, comes up on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus had earlier prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. And that, of course, took everybody off guard. Remember Herod the Great, the great architect, was known for, for what he built, had, had rebuilt or, or really improved the, the temple and made it just a magnificent structure. And Jesus said, not one stone of the temple 
will be left upon another. And guess what? 40 years later, the Emperor Titus and the Romans came into Jerusalem and they had the big stones, monster stones, stones as long as this pew, and they overturned them, looking for gold between the stones. Everything Jesus said came to pass, and Jerusalem was completely and utterly destroyed in 70 AD, just like Jesus predicted. So imagine this, the disciples are coming across the Kidron Valley, they come up onto the Mount of Olives, and they ask Jesus several questions. And you see these questions in verse 3. Look at verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? They're talking about the destruction of the temple. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, the disciples, from their perspective, I think at this point, they never taught this in the, the epistles, but from their perspective at this point, they thought that when the, when the temple would be destroyed, it would be curtains on reality, that, those, that these things would happen at the same exact time. Now, they didn't teach this in their epistles, but this is what they thought at, the, at this point. Now, Jesus is going to answer their questions, but how many questions are there? Remember, how many questions are there? There's two questions, technically. First question, when will the temple be destroyed? And second question, what will be the time of your coming and the end of the age? Now, that question, those questions set the stage for what Jesus is going to teach in the Olivet Discourse. For that reason, this passage of Scripture is notoriously difficult to interpret, and there are different schools of thought on its interpretation. And there are people in this church, I know, because I've already talked to y'all some of this afternoon, but there are, there are all three schools of thought are present in our church, and that's great. Uh, th- this, is, this is a subject that is, I think, if you are completely dogmatic about it, you're on dangerous ground. We need to be able to listen to each other and, and go back, ad fontis, that's the Latin term for go back to the sources, study the scriptures, be like Bereans, and see what the scripture says. But there's a reason why good and faithful Christians have disagreed on these issues and on the interpretation of the Olivet Discourse through the centuries. That being said, let me give you the three major schools of thought. The first school of thought, very prevalent school of thought, I was talking to some young men this afternoon that have this interpretation, is the preterist interpretation. The preterist interpretation, that comes from the Latin word praetor, which means past, and and the preterist interpretation essentially views all of Matthew 24, with maybe the exception of a couple verses, as having taken place in 70 AD. That Jesus came back in judgment with the, the Romans, judged Israel, judged Jerusalem, and that all of this fulfillment is essentially in the past. That's the preterist school of thought. Another school of thought is the futurist interpretation that says, yes, some of it took place in 70 AD, but really we can see a double fulfillment of all of these things. You read Matthew 24, there's a double fulfillment. So some of it happened in 70 AD, but it's all going to happen again in the future. The school of thought that I've adopted and I think has, has helped me is, is the school of thought of, of Lloyd-Jones, which is that Jesus is answering these two questions separately. So some of the things that he says refer strictly to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and some of the things he says refer strictly to the other question, what when is your coming and the signs of the end of the age? So in other words, Jesus is answering those two questions, but he's answering them 
separately. So there's, there's the, the overlap isn't there. And you, you look here in, in Jesus' answer, verses 4 to 14, I think Jesus is addressing his second coming, the second advent. And then verse 15, he begins addressing what takes place in 70 AD. Now he's going to then come back to the second advent, verses 24 to 28 of Matthew 24. And then he's going to go back, verse 29, to his second coming. Anyway, we could, we could go through all of the, the, all of it discourse, but I want to look at these birth pangs. That's my point in, in bringing you to the all of it discourse that are listed right here in verses 4 to 14. Look at verse 4. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. And this is, this is the, the, the first birth pang, if you will. For there will be many false Christs. There will be many co- coming in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Uh, many have claimed to be the Messiah. The historian Eusebius says that there were many false messiahs in the, in the first century, and throughout the, 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 the century since then, there's been people that claimed to be, to be the Christ, the Messiah. If any of you remember a guy named David Koresh outside Waco, every time I meet a Baylor bear, I, I remind them that David Koresh was from, was from Waco, the Branch Davidians. Um, but he came claiming to be the Christ. So this is something that has taken place through the centuries. There's been many false Christs, and that's one of the birth pangs. Another one is in verse 6, is wars and rumors of wars. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So he says, look, one of the signs that you are in this last age is that there are wars, and obviously there's no technology at this point where you can see stuff happening in Ukraine on your phone, but you would hear rumors of wars that are taking place across the globe. And Jesus says, look, when, when you hear of wars and when you see wars, don't be alarmed. Don't be surprised. This is, this is all that is going to take place before the Lord's return. And I do think it's interesting, interesting just parenthetically, the 20th century, more people were killed in wars than every other century combined previously. What did they call World War I? The, world, the, the war to end all wars. And then 20 years later, we had another world war, which killed more people. So it, it's, it's really astounding when you look back at the 20th century, at the, the carnage and the, the unbelievable loss of life that happened. And of course, Jesus said, don't be surprised. And then third, natural disasters. Look at the second part of verse 7. He says, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So famines, sicknesses, earthquakes. You read through the Acts of the Apostles. Luke records Acts 11:27 that there was a great famine in the land. Acts 16:26 he mentions an earthquake. Another thing, uh, s- several of the people that are mentioned in the New, New Testament were killed when Mount Vesuvius erupted, 79 A.D. So all of these things were prophesied. Jesus said these things would happen. And, and here's the point. They testified to, a, to the fact of the Lord's return, but not necessarily his timing, because what does Jesus call them? The birth pangs. So think of, think of labor pains, the contractions. They, they point to the fact that the birth is coming, They don't tell you the time of the birth. When the Lord comes back, there will be 
cataclysmic, seismic destruction. The mountains will be laid low. The valleys lifted up. Stars fall from heaven. Sun loses its light. There will be a cataclysmic battle that takes place. Some call it the battle of Armageddon. But there will be a cataclysmic battle. There will be a final antichrist, which we'll talk about momentarily, a false Christ that will be slayed by the Lord. So here's the point. All of these things are building. All of these things are building. And then at the very end, it's going to be seen on a grander scale. And that's why they're called birth pangs. So that's the first sign. The first sign. The second sign, Jesus says, is the great apostasy. The great apostasy. Look at verse 9. He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. You'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. You, you get the, the picture here, and we'll talk about this uh, a little bit more momentarily, but you get the picture that the world is united against Christ and Christians. Jesus says, all nations, all nations will deliver you up for my namesake. That word tribulation is the Greek word thalipsis. And what's interesting is as you read through the, the New Testament, it's used all the time. It's used everywhere. Paul describes oftentimes his everyday experience as being an experience of tribulation, an experience of, of persecution. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, having received the word in much affliction, ellipsis, 2 Corinthians 1, 8, he says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that came to us in Asia. So there's a sense, since all the way back to the time of Christ, Jesus says, they hated me, they will hate you. There's a sense where the believer has always been under persecution, where we've always endured tribulation. That's been the experience of the Christian uh, in this age, going all the way back to the apostles. But the New Testament says that there is going to be a final tribulation, a final persecution. And this is mentioned in, in Revelation 7:14. John says, these are the ones, these are, these are the saints coming out of what he says, the great affliction, the great tribulation. And that's what I think Jesus is saying here, is he's saying, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, we could get into Revelation and, and and look at Revelation 13, Paul or John describes the beast that's coming out of the sea that makes war on the saints, and perhaps that is this final man of lawlessness and antichrist, but the point being is that there's this persecution of the believers, this final tribulation. So Paul says, 2 Thessalonians 2.2, excuse me, 2.3, he says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, talking about the day of the Lord's return, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. So there's going to be a great tribulation in the end on the believer, and the result in the church will be a falling away. That is going to happen in the future. That's a sobering thought. There's going to be a great tribulation from the world's governments. Christians will be hated. And as a result of that, there will be a great apostasy, a great falling away. Paul says that the Lord will not come until the rebellion comes first. And if you look at verse 10, this is what Jesus says. And then, when that happens, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So there's going to be this falling away. He says, many false prophets will arise, lead many astray, and, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. 
And sometimes, you, you know, you look at the church today and you look at the direction we're headed. You wonder if this is where we already are. I often wonder that. Are we already here where, where, where the hearts of the churches have grown cold and we're worldly and we're complacent and we're about to see this falling away? Is this being set up with all these issues on sexuality where we're seeing names that were once trusted now adopt a position that is contrary to the kingdom of God? Is this what's happening in the world today? I pray it's not. My, my prayer is that there will be another revival, that the, that the hearts of the churches will be aflame, that people will hold up the light and the truth of the word of God, unleash the word of God, and people will be converted, and people will come to Christ, and that there will be a great awakening again. I know that that's your prayer, that's my prayer. But I do wonder if it's curtains on the modern church and hearts are growing cold and we are on the cusp of seeing this great apostasy. There's, Paul describes, I think, the spirit of this apostasy and this rebellion, if you would, Turn to Second Timothy, Second Timothy, chapter three. Now, there's some debate here whether Paul is just describing the unbeliever, but what I, who I think he's describing, are people that claim the name of Christ. Unfortunately, and, and, I, and I'll explain why. But this is what Paul says. He says, "Understand this." That in the last days, now we're in the last days, he says, there will come times of difficulty. There's the persecution, the tribulation we talked about. He said, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now look at verse 5. This is the scary verse. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. They have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And Paul says, avoid such people. Avoid such people. So you wonder... Jesus is going to say later in, in the Olivet Discourse that, that, that the time of his coming will be like the days of Noah. Will be like the days of Noah. What were the days of Noah like? It was a time of great rebellion against God. It was a time where people's heart had grown cold and they had abandoned divine revelation. They had abandoned the ways of the Lord how many people were saved on the ark? Eight. Eight people. So you wonder, okay, it, it's going to be like the days, days of Noah. There's going to be a, a falling away where, where hearts grow cold. Now, this is interesting. This is our th the third sign. Uh, if you would, turn back to, to Matthew 24. At the same time, that that happens, the Great Commission is going to be completed. So the same time that there is a falling away and an apostasy, the gospel is going to go forth to every nation. And this, Jesus says, must happen uh, before he returns. Look at verse 14 of Matthew 24. He says, in this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole, the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Then the end will come. So a few chapters later, Jesus gives what? The Great Commission, Matthew 28, where he commissions the apostles. He says, you go out to all the nations 
and you make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. But if you look at verse 14, look what Jesus says. He says that the gospel, that the gospel of grace, the gospel of, the, of Christ, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony, as a witness to the nations. Now, I have many post-millennial friends. Post-millennialism is the belief that before the Lord comes back, the world will basically be Christianized, that all the nations will come to Christ, that there will be a period of flourishing on the earth, and that when the Lord comes back, that the world will essentially be a Christian world. And I know it's hard to imagine that, but that is what drove our forefathers, the Puritans, to this country. They thought that, that, they, that, that the millennium was here and that the Lord would come back to a, a Christianized place. That, that was the belief of, of Edwards, Jonathan Edwards. That was belief, the belief of B.B. Warfield at, at Princeton. Ian Murray has a book called The Puritan Hope uh, about this subject. But it's the belief that, these, that the nations of the world will submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And, and by the way, I would love to be post-millennial. I mean, that, that is a lot of, that's, that's optimistic. And I, and I like to be an optimistic person. But more than being optimistic, I like to be biblical. So, <laughs> that, that's it. Um, but what Jesus says here, he doesn't say, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that the nations will all be converted here. What does he say? He says that the gospel will be proclaimed in all the nations. So that's what is needed to take place. Now, that the word nation is the word ethnos. It doesn't necessarily mean a geopolitical boundary of a country. There could be different ethnic groups within various countries. In fact, most of what, what missiologists claim are the unreached people groups are located in India and, and other parts of Southeast Asia uh, and in the Muslim world. So just a couple, couple stats. Missiologists think that there's 3.3 billion people in unreached people groups. That's about 42% of the world's population. And most of those are Hindus and Muslims. Now, also, notice that the text doesn't say that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to every person. It says that the gospel will be proclaimed in every nation, in every nation. When that happens, after that happens, is when the Lord will return. So we must continue to take the gospel, and obviously our motivation is to obey Christ. Jesus told us to take the gospel to the nations. Our motivation is to see lost people saved, to see their lives transformed by the gospel. But this is another one of those motivations, is that the Lord will not return until the gospel has been proclaimed to the nations, and then Jesus says, the end will come. So one of the things that you see here is, is you, you see this tension taking place. You see this tension taking place. So one of the signs is an apostasy, a falling away. And then the next sign that Jesus says is that the gospel's going forth to all the nations. So we need to be careful not to swing the pendulum one way and say, okay, it's... it's, it's um, there, there's no gospel going forth, and we need to be careful not to swing the pendulum the other way. Um, it, it's, there's a tension here, and, and really you see that tension in the parable of the wheat and tares. Remember Jesus said the kingdom of God is, is like a field in which the wheat is planted, and then the devil comes and he plants the tares in the field, and, and the, the workers say, come to the, the owner of the field, and they say, what do we do? And Jesus says, just wait till the end of the age, and then it'll be sorted out. 
Well, we're in that tension where there will be a falling away, but yet the gospel will continue to go forth and, and bring people into the kingdom. Okay, that's number three. Number four is I want you to turn to Romans chapter 11, to, to Romans 11. And, and the fourth thing that's going to happen before the Lord returns is the conversion of the Jews. The conversion of the Jews. And I think Paul clearly teaches this in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. The, the great question that Paul's answering in Romans 9 to 11 is what about the promises of God? You know, you're saying that God promises to save all who call upon the name of the Lord in faith. Well, what about the Jew? What weren't promises made to the Jew? And you see in, in Romans chapter 9, Paul says, this is verse 6, he said, it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So there is an ethnic Jew, and there is a true spiritual Israel. And he says, not all who are ethnic Jews belong to Israel. And he's going to argue in Romans 9 that you have examples of that with, with Ishmael and then Esau, that you have examples of people who were born technically as, as ethnically Jewish, but who weren't children of the promise. Well, in, in Romans 11, he's going to put a bow on this argument. So let's look, I'll just walk you through uh, these first few verses. The key verse that we're going to get to is verse 25, but just pay attention with me here. Just let's, let's just take this up. So Romans 11 First one, I'll make a few comments. I'm going to read it. I'll just make a few comments. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people. He's talking about, I believe right here, the ethnic Jew whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, have they killed your prophets? They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So Elijah thought he was the only guy, and, and God says, not so fast. I got 7,000 that you don't know about. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So what Paul's saying is, is when he's writing the book of Romans from Corinth, at that point in history, there, it, it seems like most of the Jews have rejected the gospel. But he says there's a remnant. There are some Jews, some ethnic Jews, who believe. And he says these are chosen by grace. They are elected by grace. So there's the doctrine of election. And, and the doctrine of election is going to run all the way through his argument. He says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel. He's talking about now just generally speaking. Generally speaking. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect, those chosen by God of Israel obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And, and you see this, this is, I believe, still by and large true today. You go to Israel, you talk to the Jews, you, you, you talk to them about Isaiah 53, and they're like, is that, that's in our Old Testament scriptures? You know, they, there's like scales over their eyes where they fail to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the historic feasts. He's the fulfillment of the Passover, the Day of Atonement, the Temple, the Tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, everything. He's the, he's, all of the promises of God have their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And you talk to the Jew and they're like, yeah, I don't believe it. I don't buy it. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that's how it is down to this very, down to this very day. The, the Jew has scales over their eyes. And David says, he says, let their table become a snare and a trap, 
stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Now, he's going to reference the Gentiles. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. So rather, he's saying God has a plan in all this. God has a plan in, in Israel's unbelief. He says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Remember when Paul would be in a city, where would he go first? Synagogue. Always the synagogue first. When they stoned him and, and pushed him out of the synagogue, then where would he go? Shake off his sandals and said, I go to the Gentiles. So it's through Israel's unbelief that then the gospel went to the, the Gentile. And then he says, he says, by no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Isn't that interesting? So, so the Jew sees the Gentile trusting in Christ, their Messiah, and that brings about a jealousy in their heart. He says, now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And I want to come back to that in a second. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. So he wants them to see Gentiles saved so that they too will come to faith in Christ. And, and Paul says, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, here Paul's going to basically talk about the, the true Christianity as an olive tree. And if you think about what Jesus said, you remember what Jesus said in John 15? He said, I am the what? The vine, you are the branches. In, in many ways, Jesus is the essence of true Israel. He is the essence of true Israel. The promise was made to Abraham and who? His seed. And the seed is singular. It's Christ. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. The way that Israel gets into the covenant is by being grafted back in through Christ. Through Christ. Uh, you don't get into the olive branch without Christ. That, that's clear. So keep that in mind here in what Paul says. He says, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others. So he's saying, you were grafted in. How, how were you as a Gentile grafted in? Through Christ. That's the only way we can be grafted in. And now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. So don't be arrogant towards the, towards the Jews. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was from the line of Abraham, the line of David. He's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic, the Davidic promises. He fulfills the law of Moses. It's all through the Jew. He says, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. In other words, they are not the true Israel, if they are not in Christ, they are broken off. You see what Jesus is saying there? You are not the true Israel if you are not in Christ. So the Jew today, in Israel today, are they the true Israel if they are outside of Christ? No, they're not. The only way for the Jew today to be saved is through Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't get saved by being a Jew. You don't get saved by being, being ethnically Jewish. You're not automatically part of the new covenant. You have to believe in Jesus. You have to be regrafted in into Christ in order to be saved. He says, but you stand fast through faith, so do not, do not become proud, but fear 
For if God did not spare the natural, natural branches, neither will he spare you. So if you don't believe, you're, you're not saved either. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity to, to, toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. If you stop believing, if, you, if, you're, if your faith isn't genuine, you also are cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. So if they believe, they're grafted back into the, to the olive root. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated, cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into the olive tree? So do you see what he, he's saying here? He's saying, look, the, the ethnic Jew, if they come to faith, they will be grafted in. So don't be prideful, Gentile, in your faith and, and the fact that Israel, by and large, remains in unbelief because to them originally were given the promises, the law. Jesus was a Jew. So there, there's a sense where they are the natural recipients of the Messiah. So don't become prideful. Look at verse 25. That's exactly what he says. Don't be wise in your own sight. Now, the, uh, here's the key verse, and I, and I went through all of that just so you could have the context. He says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial, partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A partial, partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, there's been three main ways verse 25 has been interpreted. Let me just give you, give you these quickly. Stay with me. First, when he says, the, the, has, um, oh, by the way, let me, let me read verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The way that that's interpreted is that all Israel refers to every single Christian in history, that it refers to the Jew and the Gentile. It refers to every single per person who's going to believe in Christ. Because remember, in this passage, you have people that are grafted in to the, uh, the olive shoot. Christ is the essence of the olive tree, and, and different people are, are grafted in. So they would say, okay, this the Israel here refers to every single believer. I don't think that's the case because the argument that Paul is making is about the ethnic Jew. And he's used this word Israel throughout Romans 9 to 11 to refer to the ethnic Jew. The, the second interpretation is that this refers to the full number of Jews who will be saved throughout history. So it's not a, a large in-gathering at the end of history. It's just the full number of Jews that are going to be saved from the time of the apostles all the way until the Lord's coming. But I think the third is, is the most plausible. And what this refers to is a large number of Jews who will be saved at the end of history. A large number of Jews who will be saved at the end of history. And notice this phrase, he's Paul says, a partial, partial hardening has come upon Israel until when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So there, it, there's almost like this distinct point where you're, you're seeing that the Gentile nations come to faith. But at some point, God is going to turn off the spigot for the Gentiles, and then he's going to lift the veil that's been over the eyes of the Jews. And there's going to be a great coming to Christ uh, on a part of, of the Jewish race, the Jewish people. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.16, the veil of the Jew is taken away. So you have here really, I think, a time of the Gentile and a time of the Jew. And before the Lord comes back, you're going to see large numbers of Jews converted and come to Christ. Um, I think personally, 
You, you look at what's happened in history with the establishment of the nation of Israel in 1948. You look at how the Lord is bringing Jews from all over the world back into back into Jerusalem, back into Tel Aviv, you see what's happening. I think you can see how the Lord is setting up where they're all in one place, and you're going to see lots of Jews converted. Lots of Jews are asking questions right now uh, that are very interested in, uh, in, the, in, in Christ and how Christ could be potentially the fulfillment of, of Old Testament promises. So it's very, very interesting to see what is happening right now. You see churches going cold. You see churches waffling on, on key issues. And we could potentially be seeing the mass conversion of Jews. It's not an accident. It's not an accident that the Jews all came back to Israel in 1948. Not an accident. Because remember before they were spread out all over Europe and all over uh, all over the world. I think we're seeing potentially something really special in our lifetime. So that's the fourth sign. Now let me give you one more very quickly. One more very quickly. And that's the fifth is a final, what, what Paul calls the man of lawlessness or what some have referred to as the antichrist. A final antichrist, a final man of lawlessness. Let me just give you some text very quickly. If you would turn to, to 1 John 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to go through these really fast. John says, children, it is the last hour, and as, you have you, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come, therefore we know it is the last hour. So John says, you know, he's writing this, this epistle probably 80, 85 AD, that there's many Antichrists. Uh, the Antichrist is of the, the, the spirit of Satan. Uh, the Antichrist opposes the lordship and the deity of Jesus Christ. You look uh, a few verses down, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So the Antichrist is somebody who opposes Christ, denies that he's the Messiah, opposes Christian religion. Uh, John says, 1 John 4, 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming is and now is in the world already. So the spirit of the Antichrist has been here for 2,000 years. The reformers thought the Pope was the Antichrist because the Pope opposed the true gospel. And so in a, in a lot of the Reformed confessions, they wrote down that the Pope is the Antichrist. Now, was he the final Antichrist? Obviously not. But could he in some way have the spirit of Antichrist by opposing the true gospel? Yes, he could. And so you, you can see how that spirit, the opposition to Christianity, that is the spirit of Antichrist. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, where we get this doctrine of the final man of lawlessness is from the, the book of Daniel and from 2 Thessalonians. So turn to 2 Thessalonians, and I'm just going to show you this real quick. Chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Remember earlier we talked about a final rebellion, a final apostasy? Think about, think about this with that in mind. Paul says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion comes first. We've talked about that. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that's the spirit of Antichrist, right? We've seen that in, in, in John's epistles. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now. What's restraining the Antichrist now is the power of God. That's what's keeping the final Antichrist from coming. But when God lifts his hand, then he will be revealed. He says, so that he may be revealed in his time. 
He says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until it is out of the way. So at some point, God is no longer going to restrain the lawlessness. Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So this final lawless one, this final man of lawlessness, this final antichrist will wage war against the, against the saints. He'll be the chief opponent of Christianity, and he will be alive when the Lord Jesus comes back, and the Lord Jesus, he says, will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing. Verse 9, he says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are, who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, this is interesting, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. So God gives them over. God says, you, you, you don't believe in, in Christ, you don't believe in the truth, I'm going to give you over. Isn't that fascinating? We, we live in this world and you look and you see people are being given over. They're being given over. And God's allowing that to happen. People, you wonder, how could people be deceived by somebody like this? How could people be deceived? You know, when I was a little kid, I'd be like, man, that, you got to be pretty dumb to be deceived by an antichrist, right? We're watching deception in real time. We're watching deception happen in real time on a level that, that your parents, your grandparents would have never imagined taking place. You're, you are watching people that are confused about their very gender. And they don't know what they are. Okay, now I can see how people could be deceived by a final man of lawlessness. He does a few wonders, or appears to do a few wonders. People are going to follow him. Um, a couple, couple quotes from Daniel. Daniel says this, Daniel seven twenty one, he will make war against the saints, rule over them, Sorry, that, I think that's 11.33. 11.36, Daniel says, He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and he shall speak astonishing things against the God of God. So he's going to oppose, he's going to oppose God. He's going to oppose Christ. He's going to lead the world astray. Many will follow him. Many think that he is a representation of the beast from the water, of Revelation chapter 13, but the point being is he will appear. God will, will, will stop restraining him. He will appear on the scene, and that will be part and parcel with the great apostasy that takes place at the end. But don't fear, because the Lord Jesus will kill him with a breath from his mouth. So the, the end of the story is great. Jesus wins. Uh, the, the man of lawlessness is destroyed. We're going to see the gospel go forth to all nations. We're going to see the conversion of the Jew. Anybody want to sign up to be missionaries to Israel? I've often thought about that. You know, if things get really bad, I know where the next revival's coming. So I might take my Hebrew on the road and, and go over to Jerusalem and become a street preacher over there and uh, see what fruit comes to, comes to fruition. So well, it's, it's sobering, but isn't it amazing? All this stuff is right here in the Word of God uh, of, of, of things that will mark our Lord's return. Well, let's pray. And then we'll, we'll close with a, with a hymn. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for these truths we've seen in your Word that you said, the, the Apostle Paul said, John said in, in Revelation that these things would take place before your return. But yet we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know when these things are going to be finally revealed or, or, or how far they must go before you return. So, Lord, we, we live life expectantly. We live life looking up to the heavens, waiting on you, our blessed hope. We thank you for these truths. We pray, Lord, that we would remain steadfast, that we would be firm, that we wouldn't compromise, that we wouldn't turn to the right or the left, that we wouldn't seek the 
approval of the world, that we wouldn't be deceived by the spirit of Antichrist, which is in the world today, that we wouldn't be led astray. May our eyes be on you for your name and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.